Would you bow with me now as we pray for the ministry of the Word this evening? Father in Heaven, help us to understand Your Word. Help us as we consider Your Word doctrinally, as we consider it according to the precepts that are set forth in our Catechism, Lord. We thank You for this tool that we have, this tool that does help us to understand the rich doctrines of the Christian faith. Father, as we come here Lord's Day after Lord's Day, I pray that You would open our eyes to, to understand these truths, open our hearts to believe them, give us the wisdom to live according to them. God, we are so grateful that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. I pray, Father, that we would be eager always to hear Your Word and eager also to obey it. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Question 45 of the Baptist Catechism asks, What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And here is the answer. Please repeat after me. The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. The scripture reading for tonight comes from Romans 2. Verses 12 through 16. I was a bit torn here. We could have also gone to Romans 5, verses 13 and following. But Romans 2 is a bit more straightforward, and so we have chosen that text for, for this evening. Romans 2, verse 12. Paul the Apostle writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this evening. You know, it might be helpful for you to have the catechism out before you on the Lord's Day evening. That might be a wonderful custom uh, to have that little black book that we make available in the back or to even open it up on your smartphones there. We have a nice uh, presentation of it on our, on our website uh, don't scramble to do that now. That's just a remark maybe for the future because uh, we are considering each of these questions one by one, but oftentimes I'll be making connections between uh, what has come before and what is, it, what is coming and the question that we are now considering. I, I want for you to please remember that we are just beginning to consider a new section of our catechism which teaches us all about God's law. It is a very long section, but the focus is upon God's law. We considered the first question of this section last week. Question 44 asked, What is the duty which God requireth of man? What does God require of us? What does He want from us? What does He command us to do? And that was a very natural question to ask, given that just before that we learned what will happen to the righteous and what will happen to the wicked at death and on the day of judgment. And so question 44 is a very natural question. 
Because after hearing of the very different destinies of the righteous and the wicked, remember the righteous will go to heaven in brief and the wicked to hell, most people will want to know, well, how is a person made righteous then? How is a person made righteous? Or to use the language of Baptist Catechism 44, what is the duty which God requireth of man? In other words, what do I need to do in order to be right before God, to go to heaven and not to hell? And so you see how question 44 is a very natural question. How do I become a member of that one group, the righteous, and not a member of the other group, the wicked? Uh, stated in yet another way, what does God want from me? What is required of me to stand before Him righteous so that I may go to heaven and not to hell? I cannot help but jump way ahead in the catechism to get to the full and final answer to that question. Question 90 will return to this issue. And this issue is stated a little bit differently there, but it is essentially the same issue. There in question 90 the question is, What doth God require of us that we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for sin? And so you see the, the impulse is still to, to say, How do I go to heaven and not hell? How do I come under God's blessing and, and not under His condemnation? And in question 90 the answer given is this, To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. So, how will we stand righteous before God on the last day so that we go to heaven and not to hell? What does our catechism eventually teach us? What is the full and final answer to that question? We must turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. That is the answer. The full and final answer that is given to us in question 90 of our catechism. So why does our catechism take so long to say this? Why not just say it in question 44? What is the duty which God requireth of man? Why does it not just say, believe in Jesus? Believe in Jesus. Why such a long consideration of God's law? Why do we spend so much time discussing God's law before getting to that, that gospel truth, that salvation is found in Jesus the Christ? The answer is that in part... It is God's law that enables us to see our need for Jesus. It is God's law that the Spirit of God uses to convince us of our sin and misery. It is God's law that reveals to us that we are indeed under God's curse and deserving of His judgment. God's law serves other purposes too, and we will discuss those. But one of the main things it does is to open our eyes to the reality of our sin, to the reality of of our guilt. You could think of it this way, if you were to walk up to a stranger on the street and say to that person, if you wish to be saved and to go to heaven you must believe in Jesus. If the person is unfamiliar with the Christian faith they will probably ask, why? Why do I need to believe in Jesus? Uh, saved from what? You see, that's not immediately clear to us. If we are not aware of God's law, it is not immediately clear to us in our natural state that we stand before God guilty and deserving of His judgment. We actually, in our natural state, tend to think of ourselves as being pretty good people, especially when we compare ourselves to others. Um, so the person on the street might say, why must I believe in Jesus? And saved from what 
And it is God's moral law which enables us to answer that question. To stand righteous before God, we must keep His moral law perfectly and perpetually. But as we consider God's law, all should be able to recognize that we have violated it over and over again in thought, in word, and in deed. We are not righteous, therefore. To the contrary, we are by nature wicked and deserving of God's judgment. And this is what Christ came to save us from. This is why we must believe upon Him for life everlasting. And He is able to save us because He has kept the law perfectly on our behalf. And He has indeed bore the wrath of God in our place. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. When you hear the words, God's law, you probably think of the Ten Commandments. If you've been raised in the church, you probably think of the Ten Commandments when you hear the words, God's law. And we will soon consider the Ten Commandments with care. We'll spend a long time in them, memorizing each of the commandments, and we will consider what each commandment forbids and what it requires of us. But you would do well to notice that we do not immediately speak of the Ten Commandments when we are considering God's law. No, instead, before we talk about the Ten Commandments, we must speak of God's moral law. And they are not exactly the same thing. Question 44, what is the duty which God requireth of man? Answer, the duty which God requireth of man is obedience to His revealed will. Now, question 45, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule of His obedience? What did He at first reveal to man for the rule of His obedience? Answer, the rule which God at first revealed to man for His obedience was the moral law. And so pay very careful attention to this. Before the Ten Commandments were given... The moral law was revealed. And this is very, very important. When were the Ten Commandments given, brothers and sisters? Uh, You should know that they were given to the nation of Israel through Moses after God rescued them from bondage in Egypt. That happened at about the year 1600 B.C., before Christ was born. But notice that that was a long, long time after Adam and Eve fell into sin. So there's an entire period of human history that unfolded between Adam and Moses. So many people lived in the world without the Ten Commandments, therefore. For thousands upon thousands of years, men and women lived in this world without the Ten Commandments as we know them. And in fact, even after the Ten Commandments were given to Israel through Moses, the vast majority of the population of the earth had never heard of them. We should remember that the printing press, the internet, Twitter, these sorts of things are all relatively modern inventions when compared to the long history of the human race. And so even those people who lived upon the face of the earth in the days of Moses, the vast majority of them did not have access to the Ten Commandments as they were written on tablets of stone by the finger of God. These These nations lived in darkness. They were separated from God's law. They were also separated from from God's gospel. And so, let me ask you this. Has the vast majority of the human race lived without access to God's law, therefore? Has the majority of the human population lived not knowing what it is that God requires of them? 
And if we strictly equate God's law with the Ten Commandments, then we must admit that this is the case, for the Ten Commandments were not revealed to Moses until about 3,600 years ago, and even then they were known mainly to the Hebrew people only. But this would be a terrible mistake. The truth is this, every human who has ever lived has had access to God's moral law. Every human being who has ever lived has had access to God's moral law. And when we come to the Ten Commandments, as we call them, we learn that this moral law, which is available to all, is summarized in them. It is contained within them. Again, consider question 45. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of His obedience? This question is carefully worded. The words, at first, are significant. What was the first thing that God gave to man so that he might know what God requires of him? Notice the answer is not the Ten Commandments, but rather the moral law. And notice that the question does not ask, what did God at first reveal to the Israelites or to the church for the rule of his obedience? No, instead the question asks, what did God at first reveal to to man? That is to say, to mankind, to the human race. This little phrase, the rule of obedience, means standard for obedience. And here we are learning this vitally important truth. And I am not exaggerating, brothers and sisters, when I say that it is a vitally important truth. This truth is so very important. So much true doctrine depends upon this. The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. And so let me ask three simple questions. One When was this moral law revealed? We know when the Ten Commandments were revealed. But when was this so-called moral law revealed? Two, to whom was it revealed? And three, what is it? Uh, That is, what does it say? You will notice that our catechism lists Romans 2.14-15 and Romans 5.13-14 as support texts for this question. I read from Romans 2 at the start of the sermon, but Romans 5 is also very important. And so I will draw upon both of them to answer these three questions that I have just stated. One, when was this moral law revealed? And the answer is that it was revealed at the time of creation. Indeed, that seems to be the point of Romans 5, 12 and following. There we read, and you will need to focus intensely upon this to follow the reasoning of the Apostle Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come." There are a lot of things being communicated here in this passage. But notice Paul's logic as it pertains to to our question, when was this moral law revealed? He notes that sin was in the world before the law was given. Sin was in the world before the law was given. Now this is clearly a reference to the law of Moses. The law was given to Israel through Moses, let's say in about the year 1600 BC. But sin was in the world Before the law was given. Indeed, we know from the narrative of Genesis that there was a lot of sin in the world. From the time of Adam 
to the time of Moses. Think of some of the stories that we read in the book of Genesis about that period of time. It was in that time that the world grew so corrupt that God judged the world with the flood waters. The great flood took place in that period of time. It was in that time that the world grew so corrupt that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. So these are just two obvious examples of the fact that there was sin in the world between Adam and Moses. Sin indeed was in the world before the law, that is the law of Moses, was given. But then Paul says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. It's a very important principle. Sin is not counted where there is no law. What does he mean? He is simply saying that if there is no law, there cannot be sin. For sin is a violation of the law of God. To sin, to use other terminology, is to miss the mark. But to miss the mark, there must be a mark, a standard, something that we are to aim at, a, a, an expectation from God that has been revealed to us. The mark is God's revealed will. The mark is God's law. To sin is to violate God's law in thought, word, or deed. To sin is to miss the mark, but there must be a mark. That is Paul's point. So how could it be that there was sin in the world, sin which God judged with the floodwaters, Sin which God judged in Sodom and Gomorrah and in many other instances. How could it be that there was sin in that long stretch of time between Adam and the giving of God's law to Moses? How could it be? Answer, God's moral law was revealed at creation. All human beings had access to it and they violated it in thought, word, and deed, sometimes terribly. And God judged them for it in that period of human history. This is why Paul says, yet... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who is to come. Death reigned in that time between Adam and Moses because the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed and the corrupt nature was conveyed to all mankind. And these who descended from Adam did themselves sin, for they violated God's moral law in thought, word, and deed, even before God's law was given to Israel through Moses. And so when was this moral law revealed? It was revealed at the time of creation. And number two, to whom was it revealed? The answer is that it was revealed to Adam and Eve and to all of their descendants. Stated differently, it was revealed to Adam and to Eve and to all humans who, who came from them, to all who are made in the image of God. All who are made in the image of God do have God's moral law written upon their hearts. The Romans 2 passage is particularly helpful here. Just like in Romans 5, Paul uses the word law in two ways. Sometimes he means the law of Moses, and sometimes he means the moral law. The, the context does make it very clear, though, which he is referring to. In verse 12, listen again, he says, "...for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law." And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What is he doing here? He's making a distinction between the Gentiles and the Jewish people. And he is saying those who perish, who have never been exposed to the law of Moses, will perish without the law. And those who perish under the law, those, those Hebrews who had access to the, to the Old Testament Scriptures and to the Ten Commandments, will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So just hearing the law does not make you righteous. You must also do it. For when Gentiles, he says, 
who do not have the law, obviously a reference to the law of Moses, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show, they demonstrate something, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so I wonder if you were able to follow Paul's thinking here as I read that passage. He is teaching that Gentiles, non-Hebrews, have sinned and they will perish for their sins even though they do not have or did not have the law of Moses. And the same is true for the Hebrews who were under the law of Moses. They too have sinned and will perish for their sin. They will not be saved by the law of Moses for they have broken it. But the question is this. How will God judge those who did not know the law of Moses? How will He hold them accountable for missing the mark that they could not see? His answer is very simple. Though the Gentiles do not have the law of Moses, they by nature do what the law requires. What does he mean by this? He means that, and perhaps you have noticed this, uh, that it is not only those who have the Ten Commandments who know that God is to be worshipped, that days are to be regarded as holy, that fathers and mothers are to be honored, that murder, theft, and lying are evil things, etc., etc. Have you noticed how these are universal um, facts? These are universal phenomenon. Uh, all of mankind, see, mankind seems to, to recognize this. These truths that are contained within the Ten Commandments are, are moral truths that are Fairly universal. Where does this law, this standard come from then? Where does this law or this standard come from then? If not from the law of Moses, Paul answers, they are a law to themselves, speaking of the Gentiles separated from the Hebrew Scriptures. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is, in fact, what? Written on their hearts. And so there it is. The Ten Commandments were delivered to Israel after the Exodus. They were written by the finger of God on stone, but God's moral law was given long before that. He wrote it on the heart of man at the time of creation. Every human, every image bearer has God's moral law written upon his heart. Even those who do not know the Ten Commandments know when they have done right and when they have done wrong, though they may seek to suppress this truth in unrighteousness. You are to see Romans 1 about that. I am not saying that men know these things purely. No, they distort these truths. They seek to suppress them always. But God will judge them on the last day. And He will judge them according to what standard? According to this moral law which is written on their hearts. This is the standard by what which they will be judged. Three, and very briefly, what is the moral law then? And the answer in, in general and in brief it is the law written on the hearts of men and women at the time of creation which reveals to them that they are to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and they are to love their neighbor as themselves. Can I put it that succinctly? Stated differently, the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. We cannot say that the moral law is identical to the Ten Commandments for there are some things in the Ten Commandments that are specific to Old Covenant Israel. But the two laws are intimately related. The Ten Commandments do contain the moral law which was written on Adam's heart at creation. This is a big theme, and we can spend a lot longer on this theme. In fact, this sermon is already running a bit long for an evening service sermon. 
And so I would like to conclude by making just a few suggestions for further reflection in an attempt to show why this doctrine matters. First of all, if it is true that God's moral law is written on the heart of all men, then it is here that we may find common ground with those who do not believe the um, who do not believe the scriptures regarding questions of right and wrong and matters of justice. We may use the scriptures too, of course, but here I am simply observing that it is not only the Christian who has access to these moral absolutes. Even the non-Christian who does not have the scriptures or who rejects the scriptures knows the difference between right and wrong, justice and injustice, even if they have suppressed and twisted the truth within their own heart. And so we should appeal to God's moral or natural law when seeking common ground with our non-believing neighbors. Think more upon that, brothers and sisters. I think this is an important concept. Two, there are some Christians who think that if a person has not heard the gospel, then God will not hold him guilty on the day of judgment. Have you ever heard that view before? What about the, what about the heathen living deep in the jungle who has never had access to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Certainly, God will not condemn that one. You've probably heard this position. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are so very clear about this. Men and women are not judged based upon whether or not they have heard the gospel, but rather they are judged based upon whether or not they have sinned. The question is not, have they heard the gospel? Rather, have they received God's law and have they kept it? The answer is, yes, they have received God's law and... No, they have not kept God's law, but they have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. The Hebrews and the Christians have God's written law. Those who do not have the Scriptures have God's law written on their hearts. And yet it is true that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. And it is also true that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Men and women are not judged based upon whether or not they have heard the gospel, but based upon whether or not they have sinned. And all have sinned. For all do have God's moral law, and they have missed the mark. Therefore, we had better get busy with proclaiming this gospel, so that men and women may come to salvation through Jesus Christ. Three, consider that one of the things which God does for us in regeneration is write this law upon our hearts and make us willing and able to obey it. The moral law is written upon the hearts of all men. I am not moving away from that truth now. But what is the trouble? What is the trouble? In sin, we suppress and distort the truth of God's law. And in sin... Our hearts are hard to God's law. In our natural state, we do not love God's law. Instead, we hate God's law. We war against it. We are eager to disregard it. But in regeneration, the Spirit engraves this law anew and afresh upon our hearts and makes us willing and able to obey it. The Lord spoke of this through Jeremiah the prophet as He revealed the glories of the coming new covenant, saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is not denying that God's moral law is written upon the hearts of all men, but rather it's addressing that problem, the fact that we have distorted God's moral law in our sin, and our hearts are hard to Him in regeneration The Lord writes His law upon our hearts anew and afresh and makes us willing and able to obey all that God has commanded. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians cannot disregard the law of God. We must love God's law from the heart. In fact, it should be expected that we will because of this work of regeneration. And the Lord spoke through Ezekiel also, saying, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey all my rules. This is what is done to the one who is effectually called. This is regeneration. We are given a new heart. A new spirit is put within us. God makes us willing and able to walk in His statutes, to be careful to obey all His rules. Other terms that can be used for God's law. Brothers and sisters, may we grow in our love for God's moral law. The law written on the heart of man at creation, the law revealed to Israel through Moses and summarized in those Ten Commandments, and the law that has been graciously engraven upon our hearts through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to make us willing and able to obey Him in thought, word, and deed. May we grow in our love for God's moral law. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, in heaven. From the time of creation you have not left us to wander in the darkness, not knowing which way we should go, but you have instructed us. You have given us your law. You have shown us what is required of us. Father, I pray that we would understand this truth and understanding it that we would see how horrible our sin is, that we have wandered away from, from, your, from your truth, from your law. Uh, Truly, we are deserving only of your judgment, but you've been gracious and kind to us in Christ Jesus, and we are grateful. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here that we would daily grow in gratitude, that we would daily grow to love your word more and more, that we would daily grow to hate sin. Father, help us in these things. We do pray that your spirit would convict us of sin. And that your spirit would lead us in paths of righteousness for our good and for your name's sake also. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you for the way that it drives us to Christ. We thank you for the way that it shines as a light to our feet. Help us to obey it always in Christ's name. Amen.